Hi, my name is Kevin Vondro, Chief Lending Officer for Westfield Bank and host of Sharing Knowledge, a video and podcast series that brings you insight on banking from the perspective of business owners, insurance agents, and individuals from all backgrounds, but with the same passion for the pursuit of financial freedom. In this episode, we'll be talking about cybersecurity. I'd like to welcome our guests that are joining us here today. First, we have Jared Long, Treasury Management Leader, and who's also a certified fraud professional with Westfield Bank. Jared, thank you for joining us, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Kevin. Um, as Kevin mentioned, I'm the Treasury Management Leader for Westfield Bank. I've been with the bank for the past 11 years, and I currently live in Medina with my wife, Danielle, and our two children. Thank you, Jared, and thank you for joining us here today. Our next guest is Ken Fanger, who is president of On Technology Partners. Thank you for joining us here today, Ken, and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what does On Technology Partners do? Thank you, Kevin. I am Ken Fanger, and I've been president of On Technology Partners for almost 30 years, and we are helping manufacturing companies be able to implement cybersecurity and network services across Northeastern Ohio, and we've been doing it for a long time now, so we're excited to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, cybersecurity, that's a, a, a big topic today, and Jared, why don't you tell us a little bit about cybersecurity and, and why it's important for companies to help protect themselves against cyber crimes? That's a great question, Kevin. So cybersecurity consists of all the technologies and practices um, that companies utilize to protect their computer systems and electronic information. You know, as the world we live in today, um, more of our lives are online. And because of that, um, cyber attacks are extremely prevalent at this time. Thank you, Jared. And, and talking about cyber crime, Ken, why don't we talk about how often does it occur and is it more prevalent today now that everyone's working more remotely and virtually at home? So Kevin, yes, it has become much more prevalent because where it used to be people would be safe behind their corporate firewalls. I mean, every company has a whole team usually committed to protecting the group. Unfortunately, when you go home, that protection tends to go away. And so cyber attackers are realizing this and they're making it a point to go after those home employees much more than they did before because there's more of us out there. And I've always said inconvenience and security go opposite each other. So as you go home and you're working from home, you want to get to what you need to do quickly. But doing that, you sometimes bypass important steps like a VPN, which is a virtual private network, just to get to what you need so fast. When you do that is when they attack. They look for opportunities when you're sitting there being non-safe because it's easier to get your job done. And when you're home, you're more likely to do that than when you're in an office environment. Jared, when you think of, of cyber crime, what is the first line of defense that they can do to help prevent cyber crimes? You know, it really starts with awareness of, you know, what attacks are out there. Staying vigilant with best practices that all the employees, um, you know, can utilize that, uh, that make sure that it's protected, uh, that they're protecting, um, you know, not only the, the, the network, but also, um, you know, any of the, uh, the systems that they're using, you know, while they're signed in at that company. But really, it starts with awareness. Okay. Ken, how important are passwords um, in, in protecting information? And, and what are some best practices around passwords? So passwords are very important. For a lot of people, that is their only line of defense. Obviously, you always want to try and not have that as your only line of defense. But there's a lot of times, and when I used to work for a pharmaceutical company, we could go around and look under keyboards, and people would write down passwords. And the problem with passwords are there's so many we have to remember. It is almost impossible. I have over 350 passwords I have to remember myself. So if you figure every single person has 20, 40 passwords, 
you start to cheat. You start to use the same password for your Google account that you use for your bank account. The problem is, if somebody hacks your Google account, it's not as bad as if they hack your bank account and all of a sudden take all of your money. So you want to make sure that you're using better practices. One of the things we recommend to all of our employees and all of our customers is to use what's called a password management system. It's LastPass is the one that we use, but there's a lot out there. What it does is it gives you an aggregation of these passwords, and it lets them be complex. You should not use your last name, your kid's name, your dog's name, anything that's easily to be guessed. Those will get cracked quickly. The more complex you make it, the safer it is, but the more you have to remember. So use these things to get through that and avoid it. Some other ways around passwords are to use what are called passphrases. So you have a series of words as opposed to one that can make it more complex as well. You know, often, Ken, when I sign into something, it asks me, my, my computer asks me, um, do you want to save your password on file? Is that a safe practice to do or, or is that something we shouldn't do um, whenever we're logging into our different applications? It is generally discouraged by security people to use like Google to save your passwords. Um, that's the first place. And one of the things that I was just reading about is that the attackers are getting into your browsers while you're still online and they're using your cookies, which keep those certificates in them. And then they use them to get into the files they need of yours. So you want to, I've never used Edge or Chrome's password save functionality. It's just an extra step. It's not that I'm disparaging Google in any way, but if somebody does get in and starts attacking your system, that's the first place they're gonna go. So you wanna try and avoid being where they expect you to be when you protect yourself. Again, a lot of times when we think of, of cyber attacks, we think of, of those happening in large amounts, right? That's really what's, what's being published or, or, or advertised out there. But what does an average cyber attack look like? So Kevin, you hear these like $26 billion by the FBI from 2016 till now in wire fraud. The problem is when you talk about billions of dollars, the average company doesn't understand it. A lot of times what you're talking about can be a $1,000 attack, $120,000 attack. These are what actually happens to these companies. If you're a one-man company and somebody takes you for $45,000, that's devastating. Um, so you... The news wants to put out the big numbers because they're exciting and they think, wow, amazing, 26 billion. But most of these attacks, ransomware attacks, are $500 in a lot of cases. The problem is, once you get registered as somebody who pays the $500, they come after you again and again and again. Um, it's like any other company and their customer. The customer that pays you want to go after. The problem is they're doing it as an attack on you as opposed to giving you a service. So you are looking at usually small amounts in a lot of cases but it's consistent. And one of the things like with wire fraud or credit card fraud, they'll start with really small amounts, $1, $2. They'll see if you're watching. If you're not watching, then they'll grow and all of a sudden they'll do a $20,000 charge against you. And like we have a policy in our company where we watch for any $10,000 or higher action in any account. And if it is, it gets flagged and we review it. So you want to set a small number because they know small numbers. In fact, I'll give you one other example. The FBI, requires $100,000 before they will necessarily engage in a cybercrime situation. Now, they have new divisions to deal with that. This was about eight years ago. But the criminals knew that, so they only took $30,000 or $40,000 because they knew they would not get involved because it was too small an amount. So a lot of companies get hit with these smaller numbers, and they don't realize it's adding up over time. Wow, that's, that's amazing. I guess it goes back to the point uh, where Jared brought up uh, the importance of balancing your accounts and, and making sure you know what activity is going through there on a regular basis so that you can maybe acknowledge that or, or, or find uh, if there are issues with your accounts. 
Yeah, one thing that we see a lot of times uh, on the banking side is the fraudsters want that transaction to look like a normal transaction. So, you know, if you're a company that's normally sending, you know, a $20,000, maybe a $25,000 wire, that's exactly what they're going to try to do. They want to make that transaction look as normal as possible because they don't want anybody to second guess it within the company. That's a good point. You know, one thing I, I, I did here, um, and Ken, maybe you can acknowledge this, that you know, like a lot of times they make those emails look as close as possible to the original email. But I heard if you hover your mouse over it, sometimes you can actually see what the real domain is. Or are there any other tips out there that, that people should be aware of um, when they see suspicious emails? For example, one of the rules we put in for our customers is if you did get a re transaction request payment and you weren't expecting it, get on the phone and call them. Um, and also, when you're working with a bank like Westfield, be in communication with them the whole time. So yeah, you can, if you do look at emails, you can hover over. The problem is your phone doesn't have that hover over functionality, but they'll use like Microsoft One or Facebook A in the name, but you have to be very observant so you don't miss it because they want to make it, again, look and feel exactly like you expect it to be. And so you want to take the extra time. It is inconvenient, but it protects you from a lot more inconvenience if you do get hacked. And, and you mentioned something um, I think is important, is communication. And, and Jared, how, how important is that communication between the bank and, and the customer? It's really important. And um, Ken brought up a very good point, um, you know, to pick up the phone and call. Um, you know, one thing that, that some people will do will respond back to an email. Um, and at that point in time, you're just communicating with, with the person that's trying to attempt the, uh, attempt the fraud. So, you know, pick up the phone and call. Um, don't ever use the phone number that's on the email signature. Um, definitely use um, a phone number that you have saved in your phone or on the system. And just pick up the phone and really, um, you know, talk to that customer, you know, um, ask them about the transaction um, and, you know, rest assured that they will, you know, be glad that you made that call. Um, you know, they're, they're more than happy to explain what's going on opposed to possibly some money leaving the bank without your permission. You know, one thing that, that we try to do at the bank is, is make sure all of our customers sign an annual acknowledgement that they know what all the protocols are, best practices are um, around online banking and, and really virtual banking. Um, Ken, is that something that most businesses should incorporate too and, and, and create that type of practice for their businesses, for their employees? Well, yeah, and, and, and one of the big things is most hacks come through an employee, but most of the time it's because the employee does not realize what they shouldn't be doing. So you should have a policy and a process for training, but you also have to understand humans are humans and you have to take the time to remind them and keep them up to date. Nobody actively tries to let their company get hacked, but if you're going through a day and I get 150, 200 emails a day, and I see something I think is good, I may not take the time to do that extra stuff, but by building it in. The other thing that's good if you have a company and you do a lot of transaction through email is what's called a white hat attack, which means you have this thing that fakes spam emails and then teaches people how to deal with those after they get attacked so that it's not going to the enemy or the hacker, it's going to a safe company. But it's all about training and it's all about understanding that I, I, everybody hears the word common sense. The truth is common sense is not common. People don't realize until you teach them what they need to do. And it's a bad assumption to assume your team knows. And everybody makes that assumption in the companies we've worked with. I, Ken, you brought up some good points and, and, and a lot of it's around training and education. Um, but a lot of times we're working with, with companies that don't have an IT department or the resources to provide that. So what are some tips? I want to open up to, to either, either one of you on this. 
some tips that, that companies can, can take away um, around that as far as where they can get those resources or, or help in, in providing that training because we know that's the key is, right, is, 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 is educating your, your employees. Um, well, one of the things, and we can help companies with that directly, but there's a lot of good resources on the internet. Um, and one of the things you can always look at is, if you can't do training, you can use automation, but there is cost to any type of automation. But there are a lot of good resources. We try and provide those to ours. I have about 21 white papers that we give out on cybersecurity, cybersecurity training, best practices. So there are resources even for small groups of people. And it's more important than the small groups of people because they don't have the money to put the higher level security. Like a Westfield Bank has a whole team that protects your money. But if you're a two-person, five-person, seven-person company, nobody in the company is thinking about security as their primary role. And so we can be that group. There's a lot of good companies that help do that type of stuff. And then you can also look for your community colleges because they can have courses on cybersecurity and cyber training for your teams. Jared, what about wire fraud? Um, I hear that could be, that's been one of the most common forms of, of cyber attacks that, that customers have to deal with. Sure, most definitely, uh, and you know, wire fraud is something that we see on a daily basis. So, you know, as as Ken mentioned, um, you know, earlier, you know, it could be a wire for a thousand dollars, or it could be a wire for a hundred thousand. So, again, you know, as as those fraudsters are attempting that fraud, they want that transaction to look like a normal, you know, transaction for that business. So, um, wire fraud is something that you definitely need to create awareness about with your with your employees. Uh, some of the best practices that we recommend for you to combat wire fraud is utilize dual control. Um, and dual control basically is a two-step process for releasing a wire. And what I mean by that is one person uh, within the company initiates the wire and then a secondary person comes in behind and approves the wire. So you're getting two set of eyes on that transaction before the money leaves the bank. Um, another feature um, that we mentioned earlier was uh, signing up for email alerts. Um, you can sign up for an email alert that gives you a notification when a wire transfer has been initiated and approved. Um, you know, both of those options are, are completely free. They're no cost to a customer, and it's just an extra layer of security uh, that you get to see those transactions before the money's been released. Yeah, Jared, I, I think i like to add um, one thing that if people could use common sense, that would help prevent a lot of fraud because a lot of times, especially in wire fraud, it seems to happen when people are out of the office and they get those communications like, hey, I need you to send money here, or you know, like this, these, these people need help. Um, and, and you mentioned communication, I think that's key, right? Is, is if you are uncertain, pick up the phone, whether it's pick up the phone to your bank or to someone within the company, just to validate and make sure that is a, a, a true and consistent transaction. Right, that's a good point, Kevin. And you know, these, these, these fraudsters, this is what they do on a daily basis. They're very good at what they do. And, you know, they know um, that people are busy. So as they're sending, you know, this request, you know, they're sending it with a sense of urgency, trying to catch somebody off guard, knowing that they might send something out without um, really double checking or, or sort of following through. But one thing that's a best practice is to really question anytime you get a request for sending funds outside of your account, you know, really look at that request and, and really think through and, and sort of ask yourself, is this fraud? You know, how much time does it really take to pick up the phone and really call somebody and, and check with them before you initiate that transaction? So patience and common sense are two ways to help really combat fraud. Absolutely. Um, when you're doing, doing banking electronically. 
Now, now one thing um, we haven't touched on is you have fraud. What happens next? So, so Ken, uh, I'm a company and, and I have fraud. And what are, what are my options or what are my steps? So the first step is you want to get with your banker. And that's one of the advantages of a Westfield, which is a regional bank, is they're part of your community. You want to start talking with them. You want to find out what mechanisms they have in place to help you. The next thing, make sure you do reach out to the cybercrime division of the FBI because they can help, especially if you have like a ransomware attack. A lot of those ransomware keys they already have and they may be able to unlock it. But they'll also take you through a very strict process to help you deal with the fraud as best as possible. One of the disadvantages is as soon as the money's in the other bank, it's quickly taken out. So the faster you jump onto it, the faster you can address it, the more likely you might be able to recover the money or stop additional losses as they go forward. Ken, so you mentioned ransomware. Why don't you elaborate more on that to, to the audience? So ransomware is where a hacker sends a small program to your computer or your phone, and then it causes all of the information to be what's called encrypted. And encrypted means you can't read it unless they give you an unlock key. So what happens is, for a home computer, it might be all your pictures, your bank information. If you're a business, it could be massive. Um, we've had businesses that got ransomware and they came to us after the fact and it wiped out their formulas if they were a pharmaceutical company. Or you may have heard of, like I said, Florida. Florida lost all of its citizens' information, and they had to pay $400,000 plus $2.5 million in costs to get it recovered. So ransomware is one of the worst things you can have that happens to your computer, and there's a lot of easy ways you can do if you do it beforehand. There's a lot of painful ways to fix if you get it after. Now, if you back up your information on a regular basis, are you able to restore to an earlier version and restore your systems, or is that still not foolproof with ransomware? The answer is, if you properly are backing up to a second location or a third location, you can. If you have, like a lot of small businesses do, where they have a hard drive attached to their computer, it goes through everything. Um, so when you do look at backups, you want to make sure those backups have ransomware recovery as part of the package. All of our backups that we do have it. And then you want to make sure that they're not always attached to the computer. We had a wonderful church client that had backups. They did everything right, but they had everything attached to the computer. When the ransomware hit, it wiped out all the backups. But yeah, that's one of the best ways is to have backups. The other thing that people don't do is they don't test their backups. So I've had where ransomware hit, and I said, here's our backup, and I put the tape in, and the tape was blank. But those are the types of things. So when you do it, it still requires a policy and a procedure that you follow to make sure you are protected. You can't just say, I'm backed up. I haven't checked it in two years. I'm fine. So, but yes, if you do backups, you are protected in many cases from ransomware attacks. You can just recover that. Okay. If you are a victim of fraud or experience ransomware, you know, we heard about cyber insurance. Is, is that something that will protect you or reimburse you for those losses? And it, does it always work? Um, well, cybersecurity is a great thing to have. It will not protect you. It's not like antivirus. It's not like patching. But what it does do is it'll help make you whole. And so that's very important because if you do get a ransomware attack and you do have to pay the fees or whatever, they'll be helping you through that. It's one more protective step in the process. Now, I will tell people you have to be careful when you get cyber insurance because they will require you to follow and prove you followed very strict steps to show that you've taken the proper steps. So if you get cyber insurance and you don't do their policies, they're gonna reject the claim. And you don't wanna find out after you get attacked that the claim is not gonna be supported. But you should be looking at cybersecurity in this day and age and make sure you look at what the costs are, like any insurance. You wanna spend appropriately, 
But if you lose your information, if you lose your bank accounts and they take out $100,000, that could devastate your company. Thanks, Ken. And I know we covered a lot of scary topics today around fraud and what we need to be careful about. But I think it's important to recognize that two-thirds of businesses and individuals still do their banking electronically and online. So Jared, why don't you talk about some of the things that Westfield does to help protect customers when they're doing online banking and maybe some of the things more importantly that we don't ask or require when doing online transactions. Sure. So I, I think it starts with, with having that conversation with your banker, um, you know, really having that conversation to see, you know, what your bank offers as far as fraud prevention tools. I think Ken mentioned earlier, um, it's better to be prepared before it happens than try to figure out what to do after the fact. So, you know, having that conversation with your banker to discuss what options are available to you, um, you know, that goes a long ways. And it's one thing um, here at Westfield Bank that we take very seriously is security. So, you know, we're very dedicated in, in, in making sure that we're staying up on the most recent trends um, and really helping our customers uh, to be as safe as possible. So. You know, one thing that Westfield will never do, um, we'll never ask for any type of um, sensitive information over email. We'll never ask for, you know, your social security number, your date of birth, or any type of account number. So if you were to ever get some type of email like that, my recommendation is pick up the phone, have that conversation, you know, with your banker, talk over that email that you have received, um, and they can give you what to do for your next steps. Okay. Thank you, Jared. I want to thank you both, Ken and Jared, for, for joining us here today. We covered a lot of good topic and information around cybersecurity and really how to protect yourself and your business when you're doing banking virtually. Uh, in conclusion, Jared, what is one last thing you would, you would give or advice you would give businesses out there in dealing with cybersecurity? I know I've said it a couple times before, but it starts with communication. Um, you know, really having that conversation with your banker uh, to discuss you know, what options are available to you? Um, you know, we mentioned a lot of good things today that can combat, you know, uh, online, you know, fraud. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's good to talk through those situations to see, you know, what those things really entail um, and really to, to have that conversation with your banker to see how, um, you know, the bank can better protect you and better protect your money. Thanks, Sharon. Ken, would you like to add to that? Yeah, so it's important for them to remember that they are responsible for their security and you can't just pass it off. I tell people it's kind of like your accountant. If your accountant does bad things, you still are gonna be liable at the end of the day for the taxes that aren't paid. In, insure, in security, you wanna take that same type of approach, but you wanna find those good teams, the Westfield Banks, the On Technology Partners, that regional field, because they're gonna care about you. And that's what you need when you're out there. You don't wanna be out alone in the desert trying to find your way to where you need to be have trusted partners that you build with, that you grow with. That banker that you know personally is gonna be a much better resource than an online number that's an 800 number that you hope you get somebody good. And that's what a Westfield would bring. On Technology Partners, we've been doing this for a while. We're small, we're lean, we work with you. We understand that throwing everything at you can overwhelm you. And being able to understand that is important in your journey. No, that's great advice. One last thing I'd like to add to, uh, to the conversation is 
you know, like as companies out there and even individuals, we need to be patient and careful. A lot of times what happens with cybersecurity is there's a sense of urgency. They need information, they need it right away. So they create that urgency so they want people to respond quickly. And they always ask for confidential information. And that's typically something you don't get in email. So those are two things you want to be careful of whenever you get an email communication. If there's that urgency in it or they're asking for confidential information. Now, one thing we like to do in our sharing knowledge uh, podcast are, are ask our, our presenters, like, what's on their watch list? Something of important that you guys are, are, are looking at and, and watching out there. So, Jared, I'd like to start with you. What's on your watch list? What's important to you and, and maybe something our viewers should be looking at or, or watching? A couple things that the Treasury Management team is, is keeping a close eye on is payments. So. Um, one of the things that, that we're looking at is contactless payments. So, you know, prior to COVID, uh, the U.S. was a very low adapter of contactless payments. Um, and since COVID, um, obviously a lot of people are more interested in that because it involves not touching, um, you know, that credit card machine. Um, and, you know, because of that, um, a lot of retailers have started to accept contactless payments that weren't uh, accepting before. So pre-COVID, it was around 40%. Uh, and post-COVID, uh, it's up to 65% of retailers that will accept contactless payments. So again, it's, it's technology that's changing uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and it's something that we're looking at here at the bank. Um, and we anticipate having something available uh, this year at some point in time. Um, the second item would be um, same-day ACH for our commercial clients. So same-day ACH uh, is a product that's been around for a couple years. Um, when um, that product was initially rolled out, it wasn't the most user-friendly uh, product because it had some limitations. Um, and they've lifted some of those limitations over the last couple years. Um, one thing that they did in 2020 was they increased the limit from $25,000 to $100,000. And one of the updates that we're going to see in March of this year is the cutoff time is moving from 245 to 445. So um, it's an item where, you know, I feel like, you know, clients should really look into. It's a very um, efficient way to send money um, to different partners and a very inexpensive way uh, to send money to partners. So those are a couple of the items that I'm looking at. Thanks for sharing that, Jared. Ken, would you like to add to that? What's on your watch list? So we are watching where people are moving to cloud services. It can be cloud banking. A lot of what we do right now are like the Office 365, email, Teams. Um, because of what's happened with COVID, that has shifted into high gear over the last year. So it used to be, I think, 15% of the industry as of last year was using cloud services, be it banking services, be it uh, email type of services. That number is accelerating it quickly. And unfortunately, it carries with it its own set of risks, as we're talking about when you're at remote locations and you do your banking when you're at a remote location or you're checking your email. So all of those security questions are getting hyper accelerated because of us all having to work from home and being able to get to files we need, being able to get to services we need, being able to pay payments on one day ACHs. It changes how we're doing things as we keep moving forward, and we have to look at that every step of the way and what new things become or exposed as we start to move this journey forward. Awesome. Great topics. Uh, one thing I like to share, it's on my watch list, is regulations. Um, more around banking regulations. Uh, with the last administration, some of those regulations were, were, were rolled back and, and made a little bit um, less regulated uh, and just curious to see what's going to happen with this administration and how that's going to impact how we do business 
for our customers in the future. Well, I want to thank you both again for joining us on our podcast around cybersecurity. So thank you again. Thanks, thank Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Sharing Knowledge is brought to you by Westfield Bank. Hosted by Kevin Vondro, Chief Lending Officer. From the imagination and creativity of Chris Van Osdale, Elise Love, Suzanne Favre, Corinne Wilson, a marketing communications strategist at Westfield Bank. Produced, edited, and mixed by Shark and Minnow. Learn more at westfield-bank.com. Sharing knowledge and shedding light on the financial industry to empower financial freedom. The Sharing Knowledge series of videos, podcast episodes, and articles are for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as legal, tax, financial investment, accounting, or regulatory advice. Opinions expressed and third-party information shared herein do not reflect the opinions of Westfield Bank, Westfield Group, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. The information shared does not constitute nor is intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any product or service. Testimonials may not be representative of the experience of other customers and are not guarantees of future performance or success. Bank products and services provided by Westfield Bank, member FDIC, an equal opportunity lender.